The Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, as we study the good news that Matthew wants to present to us, may we also find good news in our lives and be good news to others. Amen. Well, welcome back, everybody. So last time, which was two weeks ago now, we got interrupted with the organ. You know, how typical a church um, that the organ interrupts us. We, we um, <laughs> made it through Matthew 1 through 4, and then, of course, in preparation for today, I asked you to read 5 through 12, which is major, major teaching block, right? And here is where we're really trying to see Matthew's vision of who Jesus is and what good news looks like for him, okay? So just to, to back up a little bit, I reminded you or, or mentioned last week that Matthew, of course, is the most Jewish of the Gospels. Even though it's written after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, it's written to a group of people we think that are keeping, by and large, kosher food, uh, dietary regulations, probably knew the 613 rabbinical rules, that is 365 things to do, 248 things not to do. When you know all those things, you become a bar mitzvah, a son of the commandment. These are people who likely would have memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, memorized them by the time they were 13, so that they could be uh, bar mitzvot, uh, sons of the commandment, right? Uh, and so even though there was this other form of Christianity that we read about in our New Testament that came through Paul, one that was very Gentile-friendly, right? Matthew is likely writing to a community that is struggling with the Gentile-friendliness, right? And we'll see some inclusion of Gentiles. I mentioned to you last week in the genealogy that Matthew includes the three women that were sort of acted out, frankly, and were foreigners. Matthew includes them possibly as a way of saying in the middle of that controversy about whether you have to be a pure Jew to be a follower of Jesus or you can be a Gentile, he, he, he arguably is sowing seeds that, that there's unity to be had in the movement, right? But today we start out with, with the most famous thing, right, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the reason this matters is because here comes Jesus doing exactly what Moses did, and Moses is the lawgiver, Moses is sort of the, the it's hard to say who, who it is is the father of Judaism. You hear Father Abraham, but really, frankly, it's all about Moses, right? And at the time of Jesus and at the time now in, in Judaism, uh, the, the, the movement in Judaism that won the day is called Rabbinical Judaism, there's actually two laws that Moses receives on top of Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb, and a lot of times we don't realize this, there's the law that's written down in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the written law, or the Torah. If you're Jewish, you call that the Torah. But then there's what's called the oral Torah. That's the part that God told to Moses that Moses didn't commit to writing, but instead passed down through the ears of Aaron and the Levites, etc. And, and the heirs of that knowledge were the rabbis. Okay? So... We often think that if we read the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, we know what Jewish people should do, but we only know half of the story when we do that, right? Because rabbinic Judaism has this other oral Torah. And, and, and that becomes really important because now here comes Jesus on top doing this sort of again. And, and the frame for this, right, is what, what Jesus ends up saying, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, no, no, I have come to fulfill them. I have not come to remove 
a jot or a tittle, reads the King James from the law. And just to give you an idea how that looks, um, in Hebrew, there's a letter called Dalit, and that's a D, and there's a letter called Resh. And if you remove the jot from the Dalit, you've made it into a Resh. Okay? Does that make sense? And then uh, there's, there's a tittle. Um, in Hebrew, there's a silent letter called... Uh, what is that called? <laughs> oh, they got on here. It's called the Yod, and it really is just a tiny mark. And Jesus is not to remove any marks or any letters from the Torah. No, no. What he's there to do, he says, is to fulfill them. And so that becomes sort of the interpretive key for the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus is going up there and basically saying, you've got this written Torah, and then there's this oral Torah, and what I'm going to do is represent a synthesis of both that is the fulfillment of the whole thing. Okay? So that the common person, not just the rabbi, can practice this, so that you know what righteousness looks like, and therefore, nothing is changing. Everything is, being, um, everything is being taken to its full maturation of what God intended in the Sermon of the Mount. Right? So this is Jesus telling the new Christian community, this is your new law. If you're conflicted about what you're supposed to do based on what you memorized before you were 13, let me tell you what to do. It includes statements, right? Like, you've heard, do not... Um, do not do not kill, right? But I tell you, anybody who uh, looks with anger at their brother has already violated the commandment, right? And anybody who says, you fool, Raka, uh, are liable to the fires of hell. Now, this is a tough teaching, right? Because how figurative is Jesus being? Well, I think what he's saying, right, is that the law is not just to be the external boundary but the law is meant to be an internal boundary. And this is something that happens quite a bit in rabbinic Judaism. Uh, if you know about this today, I can, can illustrate this point a little bit for you, is that, you know, they have the command to the written Torah, and I'm just going to represent those with two tablets, right, which we call the Decalogue or the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. We can't violate those, right? Just let that represent the whole Jewish law. We can't encroach on those. But what modern rabbinics, this has actually been happening since probably 700 of our common era has really articulated it in this phrase, is they've really struggled to build a fence around the Torah. And so what they're trying to do is keep people away from violating any of those principal commands by creating other commands that keep you away from them. Okay, let me illustrate that point. According to kosher food rules, which is part of that Torah, you can't combine meat and dairy, right? And however, a chicken and a turkey are not considered meat because they're birds. So according to the Torah, you could baste your turkey with butter, right? You could, because it's not meat. You could never boast, baste your lamb with butter, right? Because that's a dairy product. However, butter, <laughs> butter is a dairy product, it's made from milk. So even though it's probably not made from lamb's milk, that's highly irregular that you would have lamb butter, um, you just don't combine, and see, and that's another one, right? You don't combine any milk with any meat. 
So if the milk came from a camel and the, and the meat came from a cow, you still don't combine them, not only on the same plate, you don't combine them in the same kitchen. Because when you do that, you contaminate the pot and the kitchen as well. This is how they build a fence around the Torah with all these additional rules. And what they're meant to do is keep people from states of confusion where they say, well, you know, if I can put cheese on my chicken burger, why can't I put cheese on my hamburger? And you may say, well, duh, the chicken's not the hamburger. You just learned the lesson. But the whole point of the fence around the Torah is to keep you safely away from violating any of the commands. Does, does it make sense what I'm saying? And so this is a, a way to read Jesus saying that the Torah is really meant to regulate the center of your will. That's your heart. That's your heart. And the center of your being, which is your brain. And if you'll build a fence around those things, you'll never break the external anyway. Right? So if you never say to your brother, you fool, becomes a lot less likely you'll kill him. If you are wary of being angry at your brother, much harder, much harder to commit a crime of passion like murder. Does it make sense what I mean? And, and, and then this is Jesus very much in line with rabbinic Judaism, but it's new for the day because the law is really focused on the externals, right? And, and, and modern law is obviously also focused on the externals as well because those are the things that are more verifiable. Right? I mean, motive comes into consideration when you commit crimes, right? But you're not going to go and cry on trial in a public court for having thought lusty, lusty thoughts, you know, or having, you know, <laughs> having wished your supervisor were dead, you know, it's just very unlikely. I mean, unless you actually kill the person. Okay. So that's a lot of the way to read this, uh, this sort of business um, that, that Jesus does in this, in this piece. The other thing that becomes, and this comes right at front, um, Jesus does these things called the Beatitudes, right? And, and these are read as blessed are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that word blessed, we usually think that means some kind of category of holiness, but it really means happy are. Happy are the poor in spirit. Now see, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? Because how could that be the case? And, and of course, what Jesus is saying, in some ways, is not, it's really careful not to read this, he's not saying, be happy when you're in poor in spirit, because later the kingdom of heaven will be yours. I mean, listen to the phrase, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is all present tense. Jesus is saying, people who are poor in spirit, I suppose with the right attitude, are already in possession of God's kingdom today, now. Not after they're resurrected, now, today. And that's where it becomes a beatitude or a blessing statement, right? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, right? Happy are people who are meek now. Well, usually you think those people are downtrodden, right? So this is about, if I act such a way now, I'll get a reward later. But I just want to call to your attention, that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's doing frankly, is, is, is creating these oxymorons that we witness every day as members of, frankly, a Western assertive society, right? These are not the virtues that we instill in our leaders because meekness, no, you've got to speak up for yourself, right? And in this country, arguably, maybe you do, um, but I think in a, in a 
in a culture of domination by the Roman Empire, th these would become equally jarring, you know? Uh, by the way, I didn't think Jesus is advocating extreme pacifism where people, you know, shove ice cream cones in your face and you sit there, like in that movie Witness. Anybody seen that movie? No? Harrison Ford, he goes to the Amish undercover and people like shove an ice cream cone in the Amish guy's face and Harrison Ford undercover just like beats the stuffing at him because he's not Amish and the Amish guy just sits there. I, I don't think that's the way to hear it. I think what Jesus is saying, right, is there are these attitudes here again that we usually think, we usually think this is oxymoronic, but these attitudes are really building a fence around the Torah and the Torah is about how we're supposed to live with one another and with God. So, so when you think about these attributes, about being poor in spirit, you think that's for the weak. And Jesus is saying, no, that's for the people who really want to build a fence around the Torah. That's how they live. And when you build a fence around the Torah, that's your optimal point of happiness with other human beings and God. You may disagree with it. You may. <laughs> but I do want you to hear this is not a promise of heaven later. It's a promise of God's rule now. And that becomes really important. So you may consider rereading those Beatitudes and deciding for yourself, would I be happy if I lived according to those attributes? Do you want to read them together? This is great to do. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed right now are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Now you may say, Mike, I hear what you're saying about blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven now. But the others say they will be, they will be, they will be. And, and really, that will be is not a discrete future verb. It's more like a vote, more like a modal, like they shall be, they should be. They would be called children of God. Does that make sense? So the, these really become attitudes and ways of being uh, that are meant to instill happiness meekness right people who mourn people who are pure in heart and by the way pure in heart doesn't mean you love purely that's remember your heart is the center of your being so when the center of your your being is untarnished we, we put that in our brain now you know our heart is the seat of our emotion now right and back then the heart was the center of your being that's your brain okay emotions for jesus were seated in the bowels right um Or they will see God. I mean, in some ways, that, that's sort of the promise of being, of, being, of being present. This is what meditation tries to get you to do, is to be present in the moment, not living in the past or in the future, but being here fully. And there's the promise that when you can be present, you'll see God right now, no matter what the circumstances are. And, and, and for many of us, that's, I think that's sort of convincing, particularly as we consider Eastern meditation and, and how people are flocking to it. Be, because being present instead of what I like to do, multitasking or doing one thing while I'm thinking about it the other, it really frees you to see where God is among you at that moment. And then maybe that was a weird commentary. 
Um, was that dissatisfying? The commentary on the Beatitudes? Is that helpful? Again, I think it's something to meditate on again, right? And I think part of the question is when you look back over those times where you felt like you've had those attributes, the question is, would you take them back? Those times where you were poor in spirit, would you take them back? And what does that even mean to be poor in spirit? This is where Jesus is not helpful. I would like a paragraph in which he would describe poverty in general, spirit in general, and then another paragraph, possibly an essay, on what poverty of spirit means. I know people who are poor in spirit. I call them evil. I don't, I don't think he's talking about that category of people, right? I don't think that's what he means. But it is a little bit en enigmatic. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. I better keep going on, I guess. <laughs> about poverty of spirit. Yeah, because of course, what's important, we talked about last week in Luke, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. And he didn't say anything about their spirit. Well, that'd be an equally enigmatic one, right? How are the poor blessed? How are they happy? Oh, because they don't have to worry about possessions. But they have to worry about meals, you know? <laughs> I'm just not really sure that, that, that that's great. And that's where, again, as I told you, these are oxymoronic things, and they become a little bit tough. And, you know, uh, I'll, I'll probably say this again when we get to parables, which we don't get into any of them yet, but, you know, we use analogies. If you think about this in mathematical mapping, if I know a number set that has got three components, and I'm going to map it like this, that's an analogy. It helps me understand the set I don't know because I sure know this one right? So that's analogic reasoning. And, and we use that with similes, too. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. I mean, you, you could read the box, conceivably, but if you didn't do that, you would never know what you were going to get, and life is like that sometimes, right? I mean, we, we have these sort of things that we do, but you know, what's funny is that when Jesus often makes comparisons, he, he compares things that aren't really comparable, like blessing and poor in spirit. That's really a confusing analogy because how is being poor in spirit anything like category blessing? Right? Isn't in your head blessing means rich in spirit? Inheritance of the earth. Isn't that to like competent people? Wouldn't you think competent and worthy instead of meek? You know, so when Jesus makes his comparisons between two sets, you often are thinking, wow, I thought I understood that, and I thought I understood that, and now I don't understand either one. Right? Because when you compare two things that aren't really comparable, then, then you're, 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 you're pushing to do something new, and, and a lot of people say that's the difference between metaphor and simile, is that metaphor compares two things that cannot be compared, and simile compares two things that, that actually are pretty analogous. Does that, does that make sense? I, you, I'm saying it now because I, I feel like it's in the Beatitudes. You really see it in the parables when Jesus, I mean, he just compares some crazy things together, and we don't realize it because we've accepted, oh, those, those things should be compared, right? A good shepherd leaves 99 sheep to go chase one, and, and of course that's not good shepherding. Oh, it's terrible shepherding. <laughs> it's really bad, in fact. Yes, ma'am. Not a lot. Here's, probably, here's one of the hard things about translating the Bible, just period, right? 
if somebody deviates strongly from William Tyndale's version, nobody will read it. You know when William Tyndale's translation already, yea, that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's so eloquent and so poetic, and it's so normalized in our culture or script that you better not say anything about Sheol or Abaddon or anything like that when you translate it, because people will say that's wrong. The Tyndale one is the right one. That sounds strange that I'm saying that, but, but again, blessed, the only other thing you'll see is happy are, joyful are. <laughs> but there's not a really good, good, good translation here for poor in spirit. It's just not. Spirit could be breath or wind. So blessed are people who are out of breath. That's actually a valid translation, by the way. Blessed are people who have no wind. Well, I don't know what it would mean. That's the thing, right? And that's where you can go through intense amounts of Bible study, and at the end of the day, every translation is an interpretation, and it may not be the one that guides you to the gospel. I mean, this is what becomes important. We're so used to thinking there's one right answer to this that we forget this is a panoply of answers, and that actually holding multiple ones of them at the same time might be really helpful. There are bad answers. There are some that are, that are bad, right? And some of those have become dominant script. But, and that's the whole reason for studying is to say, oh, okay, so I can kind of take the shackles off what I've been told, and then I'd like to shackle myself to something much better, but you're telling me that, I, that there's not shackles for that? A little bit. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, here's why that one's tough. You don't know if the tax collector does anything different the next day. You imagine somebody going to the confessional booth who works for the mafia and saying, Father, forgive me, I killed 15 people today. And, and the priest says, okay, I do. And the next day he goes and kills 15 more people and then goes to the confessional on the way home. And you think, well, that's not repentance. And Jesus doesn't tell us what happens the next day. He just says that day. And, and, and again, contrast that. You know, of course, Nick's talking about the parable that contrasts the Pharisee with the tax collector in Luke. This doesn't show up in Matthew, right? And, and the Pharisee is like the priest. Well, back when priests were, you know, thought well of. So let's just go back, roll back like 60 years. Oh, of course the priest is the good guy, right? The priest is, the priest is always the good guy. And in the story, he's not. And that's what I'm saying. People would have been like, yeah, yeah, the Pharisee, the Pharisee. And then Jesus says tax collector. And they thought, yeah, yeah, like you said, the Pharisee. Right? I mean, it would have just been completely confusing for them to hear that. And, and, and that's part of the metaphor of Jesus. Okay, maybe I've overdone it. Please. great question. I don't know the answer, but because of my brain, I have to parse and dissect it, right? I've met people who don't want to do that, and actually parsing and dissecting weakens their faith. I mean, I, my, my mother has told me that, you know, that that's how it works for her, that asking too big a questions is not helpful for her, and, and of course, the response is then don't do it, um, but I can't do it any other way than that. 
you know. So I think the truth is, when we, if, we, if we really rest on that point, we're all blessed. Um, I mean, that's an interesting question. Are we all happy and joyful? And, and is, are these statements saying that we could be, even in the middle of some countercultural values, could we be if we chose to live into it? I mean, I think that would be a pretty, but see, that's parsing it out, right? I, but I, I mean, I'm happy with that interpretation. I think it's really helpful. I think it's really helpful to think that all of us have some poverty of spirit, whether we admit it or not. And at the moment of our spiritual poverty, there we can find God's rule in our lives, which is pretty oxymoronic, right? What we like to do is put Jesus in a golden manger, the little baby, and we like to wrap Mary up in purple and blue, which is never, she would have never owned a blue thing in her life or a purple thing. It's way too expensive. Right, way too much money. So we, we do that, we sanitize the story, and maybe like you're saying, this is saying even in moments of, golly, dare I say, depression and addiction and schizophrenia and real poverty, like even if you're living in Haiti, that the kingdom of God is there in your poverty. Well, I think that's the promise of the Gospels, sure. So I think that's a great interpretation. Is it the only one? I don't think so. And, and I think that's why the Bible is sacred book for us, because it bears multiple interpretations at the same time, all of which can be life-giving, and the conversation between them can actually enhance each additional one instead of competing, if we approach it that way. So well said. That's, that's how you get to be senior warden. You, you, make, um, you make good conclusions like that, by the way. No pressure. Uh, <laughs> yes, sir. Of course you did, me too. Looking at it now, even according to me, to me they're all words of hope. Even if you've spent a lot for us and for him, perhaps I will. So I think it's giving people hope that there's a better time The only trick about that, and again, I think that's fair, I think the only thing that we have to remember in conversation with that, right, is that sometimes better times aren't coming, right? There was an earthquake in Haiti and then there was a hurricane. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I think we have to be really careful, because I'm going to point this out, what we do in the Christian world, we've been doing this for not that long actually, is we say life is dismal and heaven's great when you die. And I want to tell you that is the most foreign reading of Jesus imaginable. Because Jesus did not believe in the resurrection we believe in today. I'm not saying we're wrong or he's wrong. I'm just saying he didn't believe in that one. That song, One Sad Morning, I'll Fly Away, has nothing to do with the Gospels. Nothing. Resurrection for Jesus, I've told you this before, is when you die early on earth and you get your body back so you can live the rest of your life. We don't believe in that. We just categorically don't. In the creed, have you ever noticed in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the resurrection of the body? You want this body back? Maybe if my knee didn't click and pop, you know? Maybe if I had a little bit of tummy tuck, I'd take it back, right? A little bit of laser hair removal, because I don't want to shave in heaven, right? This is where, I'm just telling you, this is where we've done something different than the folks at the time, okay? If you lived your natural life, would you get a resurrection up in the air? 
hope that's not too challenging. Keep that in mind as we go through some of the other things, though. Um, Jesus sort of says, you fulfill the prophets if you're persecuted. He goes on to say, right? You fulfill them. That doesn't mean you are prophets like, they, like Jeremiah, where God speaks the word in your ear. The criterion for being prophetic is that you represent larger life and people aren't happy with you for doing it. Right? Whether your name is Oscar Romero or Martin Luther King Jr. or Rosa Parks, right? that's where we can say those people are truly in the prophetic tradition because they were persecuted for the representations of larger life. And that's where it also becomes important for us to remember that prophets aren't perfect people. None of them were past or present. Martin Luther King did not get persecuted because he was an adulterer. He didn't. He got persecuted because he said there's something wrong with the world today, and we all know what it is, right? Um, and that doesn't make him less of a prophet that he didn't fulfill the Torah in every way. And we'd say the same about all of these people who inspired us. If we dig deep enough in the basement, we may find a skeleton, but that doesn't disqualify them. In fact, that qualifies them more because if God can work with those people, God can work with us. Right, but the criterion is that we stand up and represent larger life. Um, do you notice Jesus says you're the salt of the earth? This is so incredible, right? Because right now the salt that we eat by and large is Morton's. It's made in a factory. It's insanely inexpensive, right? You can buy pounds and pounds of salt for nothing, but realizing most of you that salt is the base of the word salary because people were actually paid in salt in the olden days. It was such a valuable commodity, mainly because there were no refrigerators and salt was important for curing meat and for nutrients. You could smoke meat, but those were your really only preservatives, right? That's why when you killed an animal, the whole village ate it, so it didn't spoil, right? Otherwise, it was going to go bad. Well, salt is mined from the earth and it was really darn expensive. And I had a parishioner super quirky, like, made me look really normal um, <laughs> about 10 years ago and he gave me salt of the earth and there were five vials of it that, that, that came you know, from Hawaii it was black and from the Himalayas this is the one you've seen the pink one there was from fr some French cell gris that was a little bit sort of gray but green you could really see the green in the salt and um, I think there was an orange one from Hawaii. So, so salt comes in all of these different things because when it comes from the earth, not from the Morton's plant, it, it's colored with trace minerals and it's distinct. And you know, he, he taught me this really interesting lesson, right? Which is that salt isn't about being uniform. It's not. It's about living into your own saltiness. So I just thought it was pretty interesting to think that in the room, there are many different colors of who we are internally, externally, spiritually, and that we're supposed to live into those colors instead of trying to bleach them out of us, right? I, I just, it was interesting. And when you lose the color of mind salt is when you lose its saltiness as far as the ancient world was concerned, right? It's sort of like saying if God wanted us to all be the same, why did God make us so different? It's just sort of interesting that that's in the gospel and, and that really what it's saying is that we, we have this contextual identity that we're supposed to live out as good news to the world and then agree together that your saltiness doesn't deplete mine. In fact, we enhance one another as salts of the earth. Sort of like having a light on a hill, you can't really hide it, right? But a lot of us are taught early on that we need to hide certain gifts.
because they're not culturally acceptable. Anyway, different way to hear that, at least. Um, there's something really interesting. Maybe you've heard this before. This business about turning the other cheek. Have you talked about this before? Hopefully this one's fun. So um, when someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn their left to you also, right? And a lot of times we hear that as, again, if you read that literally without context, you think, okay, Jesus is telling us to be like the Amish guy with the ice cream cone, right, that I already referenced from Witness. And when somebody sues you for your cloak, give them your tunic also. And then when someone makes you walk a mile, walk the extra mile with them. And there's been a lot of research by um, Anglican priest Walter Wink that sort of gives a completely different bearing on this and, and, and Walter Wink suggests this was really inspiring actually for both Gandhi and Martin Luther King as the source idea for nonviolent resistance. So we normally think that in times of conflict we have two options, one being pacifism, okay, I'll just take it, you know, because God would like that, or aggression. And, and Walter Wink calls this the nonviolent third way, and it, it's helpful to hear uh, many of you know that the most diminutive way that you can strike somebody is with the back of your hand. So if somebody strikes you with the back of their hand and you can only use your right hand at the time of Jesus, your left hand is for wiping and you don't touch anything with that hand. Well, you touch one thing with that hand only. Um, when somebody strikes you here with the back of their hand and you turn your cheek around, now they have to hit you with their fist. And hitting somebody with your fist is a recognition, actually, that instead of you being of a lower status, now you're in a fight, and a fight can only happen among equal people. Um, so, in a sense, it's nonviolent, but it is far from pacifist, right? It's sort of like where you have a sit-in. You know who started sit-ins, right? Martin Luther King Jr., right? <laughs> because you're sitting there, you're not fighting, but now they're having to come chain you up for nonviolently sitting in a place, right? And, and it worked really well with King because the television camera had been invented and those images got broadcast not just throughout the United States, you see, but throughout the world, right? So you think about that march in Selma where the people are just walking down the road and on video they see police officers, just people just walking, right? Spraying people with fire hoses and sicking their dogs on the people. And they weren't fighting, they didn't fight back, right? They got up and they walked or they covered their head and they lay there and got sprayed with a hose. And you say, well, that's pacifist. Well, when the world sees that, they say this system's unjust and wrong and we're gonna overthrow that system, right? How, how can you do that? There's a story for Gandhi where um, he was supposed to, <laughs> he was gonna burn his ID in South Africa, and he had this big burning party, you know, a big fire, and he went to go put his ID in the fire, and a South African policeman, because he was Indian, and Indians had to be registered, right, because they weren't Afrikaners, right? Um, the, the South African policeman hit him with a stick. All he was doing was walking, right? So he got knocked to the ground. I mean, it was a pretty terrific blow. He slowly kind of dusts himself off, picks up his ID, and goes again. And the officer hits him again. And all kinds of people watching, right? And then Gandhi said, you know, I actually could tell when I grabbed it the third time that I'd won. Because I looked in his eye and I saw him hesitate. So he picked up his ID 
and he walked and put it in the fire because the policeman couldn't hit him a third time because he didn't resist. So that's how Gandhi interpreted this principle. So what about the token cloak and the tunic? Well, it turns out that people were in such poverty, sometimes all they owned was their garment. And a garment was, it took about eight months to a year to make your cloak. Your tunic, you're thinking about that nail apron that Home Depot will give you for about 69 cents. They didn't have underwear, they had a loincloth, that's what it was. Okay, that's your tunic, basically. And it gets really cold in the desert at night. So sleeping in a nail apron is, is just not going to be great. That's why you need the cloak. But somebody to whom you owed a lot of money could say, give me your cloak. And Jesus is saying, okay, so in the middle of the court, and there's no judge doing this, this happens at the city gate. That's where courts are. The oldest person in the city presides or the most respected person presides. And your accuser says, you owe me this money because... I lent you money to buy seeds and the crop didn't, didn't come back even though you worked it, so give me your cloak, which is the only thing of value you have. So imagine, somebody's asking for your cloak, you take it off, and then you go ahead and take off your nail apron and give them that too. Your nasty little Home Depot apron that you've been wearing for a long time. The question is, who looks worse? You, who are naked, or the person who's making you naked in front of everybody else? Roman soldiers are allowed to make you carry their 60 to 80 pound pack one mile, one, no matter what you're doing. So you, you, could, you could be, you know, an obstetrician helping birth a baby and they say, get up, carry the pack, and you go. One mile per day, all right? And so think about that. That's, that's a mile and then you have to come back. And if you're a peasant, not only is that degrading, but that can be really costly to your line of work. However, if, if a Roman soldier makes you walk more than a mile, they can be flogged. So here comes the oppressive system saying, get up, walk a mile. You make it to the mile marker, because of course the Roman roads had that, and then you keep going. And then think now who starts to become nervous. <laughs> so in some ways, this is pretty calculating what Jesus is saying, right? You could do it calculating and still win, but I want you to hear he's also combining that with the attitude of guarding the center of your being, so that you don't do this to be in control, you do this to unmask a power that frankly is oppressive and wrong. You don't do it so that you can win, you do it so rightness can win. It's a totally different mentality, right? I just thought you'd appreciate hearing that. I think it's pretty interesting. I think it's pretty interesting. Again, those reads, there's a strong trace. We're inspirational to Gandhi doing things like the Salt March, right? and to Martin Luther King doing sit-ins and bus boycotts. Because right? people were getting beaten up for not riding the bus. The aggressive thing would have been to fight back. The pacifist thing would have been to get back on the bus. Right? I think it becomes really important, you know, particularly when we think about how much violence is done on social media to think about what a nonviolent alternative would be to systems of injustice that exist today, right? They always will exist, they always will. Um, but, but really, what are the weapons of righteousness? The prayer book has this thing, it says, Almighty God, in whose perfect world no weapon is wielded except the sword of righteousness, really invites that reflection here, what's the sword of righteousness? And this is what becomes difficult about Jesus. Would Jesus have assassinated Hitler to save six million Jewish people? That becomes a really important question. 
Can you kill somebody with the sword of righteousness? Maybe that was more than you wanted to think about. (laughs) I don't know the answer, right? We go back and forth on that, right? Because we say six million versus one life, right? Of course, that's, that's, that's a calculable difference. Of course, we, we, we would do it, and if God were mad, God would understand, and that might be true. But the question is, can the sword of righteousness kill somebody? And notice how, again, that's different from a pacifist position. You don't have to be a pacifist to go there. There's an alternative to resisting evil without becoming evil yourself. And that's why when Jesus says, be perfect as God is perfect by loving your enemies, perfect doesn't mean you're without fault. Really, um, the word perfect is the word holy. So in Greek it says, be holy as God is holy. And, and holiness means being set apart. It means being identifiably different. Be, be different. Like God is different. <laughs> and one of the ways you're different is by not harboring anger in your heart. Another way is by loving your enemies because as jesus says i mean you don't have to have any faith to only love the people who love you that's easy no to be different and this is where jesus is doing something really different with the law like i told you a lot of hebrew law is about making you visibly different so you get circumcised they don't they eat pigs you don't they eat shellfish you don't they wear fabrics that are cotton polyester blends or that are, you know, made of more than one fabric. You don't do that. And a lot of the Jewish laws are written in such a way that people will look at you and just know you're Jewish. By the way you're dressed, by how you do your dietary habits, by where you will and won't eat. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. It's not about those externals. It's about the internals that will make you set apart. So that people will say, that guy loves his enemies, that's different. Doesn't feel in love with them, practices loving their enemies. Little funny things here, sorry, that's chapter 5, wow, I spent a lot of time on that. Did I skip over anything you're interested in? Or did I kill anything that you're interested in with that rambling conversation? It's very easy for me, yes sir. I don't know the answer to that, right? Well, I think we make, I think, I think here's the thing. We live, we live in this, we live in the city of humans. This is what St. Augustine would say, right? There's the city of God and there's the city of men. He, he meant humans, I think, you know. Actually, he might have thought women weren't human, but, but, but I think they are. So we live in the city of humans and then there's the city of God, right? And the question is, How do we live in the city of God while continuing in our human life? And I don't know the answer to it, right? Because I think that the, the truth is, we all know that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And of course, we learned that Machiavelli wrote that the ends justify the mean, right? But I think our faith asks us, if we, can we drive out Satan with Satan? can we fix something wrong in the world by doing something that's wrong? So you might think to yourself that killing can be justified and isn't wrong. And then obviously that's between you and God. I don't know what I think. I mean, I don't know, because life is not lived in in principles. It's lived every day on the ground, right? 
But, but I am convinced, you know, I had this friend in Coronado that was a four-star admiral. Um, part of his job, you know, he used to fly fighter planes in Vietnam and he used to shoot people on their way to the trash dump where they were, you know, going to get stuff. He almost quit the Navy. And, and he, he made it to four-star admiral because he went, he sort of stayed with it, you know. He told me there's all this talk about just wars. And he said, there's no such thing as a just war. There's just causes, <laughs> but there's no just war. And, and that becomes, I think, pretty, it's become really insightful for me, right? Are there just ex executions? There might be just causes, but I, but I don't know. I mean, I think, that's, I think that's what we're called to really struggle with. Most of us, fortunately, are not in the position where we have to make that choice at any point in our lives, and I think that's actually quite fortunate for us, right? Fair, yeah. So, and I don't, and I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer to that, right? I mean, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, this is where you start to think, how would Jesus feel about the death penalty? <laughs> well, he's not talking about the death penalty, Mike. Well, of course he is, right? He's talking about everything. He's talking about our, our entire way of looking at the world, right? And 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 what would he say about it? And, and I don't know the answer, right? Because Jesus was executed by the death penalty. I, and I think that's the fairest thing we can say, but I think the truth is the conversation, even though it can't go on every single day, probably has to continue, right? And, and I think what becomes really important is that none of these issues are flat, and when we think that they're flat, we've probably missed the issue, you know? I mean, part of what's really difficult is we, we, we say that there shouldn't be any um, cruel and unusual punishment, and we still haven't even figured out how to execute someone with a lethal injection, you know? I mean, that's become abundantly clear in the last two, two years, right? I mean, it actually seems like hanging is a much more, um, well, humane way to die than the lethal injection. Strange, isn't it? So what does it mean to love your enemies, right? This is what I mean, where Jesus has something to say about all of these things, right? And of course, we operate with two laws, right? There are laws that are prescribed in our books that we may not disagree, that we may not agree with. Do we choose to break them and suffer the consequences of that? Do we choose to protest them? Do we say, that one's small enough, I can ignore it? You know, I mean, this is what it means to live in the city of human beings, which we all live in. So I don't know what he would do. <laughs> but I don't think in the Gospels he killed anybody. He chased some people with a whip one time. You know, seems kind of rough to me. Depends on which gospel, fair enough. Yeah. By the way, is this, is this bad? Am I wasting your time with this kind of thing? It's okay that the gospels are intended to make life in some ways more difficult? I mean, I think, I, I think they are. I think they are in some ways intended to make life more difficult. Well, and, and, and I think it's not, and, this, and you said it exactly right, I think, using the word believe, and the question, what, is, what, what do we trust in, right? And, and it becomes really important, I think, for us cognitively to think, right? Is somebody that we've decided is not human 
Adolf Hitler, right? He's not a human being, he's an animal or less than an animal or something like that. Can that be true according to our faith system, right? Is it really true that there's nothing you can do to make God love you less? Is that really true? And that's where thinking about the outliers is probably really helpful for making policy <laughs> in some ways, right? Well, I'm convinced. I'm convinced we love ourselves less every day, right? And that when we act down against others, I'm convinced a lot of that comes from lack of self-love, not because we love ourselves too much, right? I mean, psychologically, that's, that's narcissism, right? And it's not healthy, and it's not real love. Um, and so it becomes really, really fun, doesn't it, to approach relatively simple words with huge toolboxes and reconsider everything at once, which again, I think is what metaphor asks, asks us to do. I better move to chapter 6 before everybody leaves in, in disgust. Um, <laughs> Jesus sort of says in chapter 6 this really interesting statement, doesn't he? I mean, and, and, I, and I think there's a couple ways to read it, and this is where I want to try to be, to be fun with you if I can. Uh, I hope you think this is fun. Um... um Okay, this is in 614. If you forgive people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive people their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Which sort of reads like an imperative, forgive or else, doesn't it? And it's funny, if you, if you have that read, the one I just gave you, and you think about the Lord's Prayer, and there's a way that we're asking God to judge us according to the way we judge people every single week. Like we're praying that, and that's central to our being. And I don't really want to ask God for that. I don't know about you. I would like, to God, I would like for God to judge me much more generously than I judge other people, right? And forgive us our trespasses way better than we forgive other people. That's how I would like to pray that prayer. You know, But I do want to suggest to you that sometimes things may not be what they seem. Right? Sometimes I think it becomes worth questioning, does God judge us like we judge others? And the dominant religious uh, expression in America is yes. And in fact, much more exactingly. It is. I, I can tell you it is. Because I happen to know what the bulk of people, which, which kind of groups the people in America belong to, right? And I grew up with this interpretation. If you sinned one time, you would go to hell forever. I mean, my parents don't even judge like that. You, did your parents judge you like that? They might have been mad. You might have felt like you'd let them down. But they wouldn't send you to hell because you did something one time, would they? And so I wonder if Jesus, by saying this, is actually inviting us to question the logic of it. Because if you only forgive because you want God to forgive you, then you didn't forgive anybody. You just were afraid all the time. Yeah. Because he's a Christian, 
Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I think, the, I think the, the, the corollary question starts to become, why are you supposed to forgive? Is it because if you don't, God will be mad at you? Or is it because if you don't, you might be missing out on larger life? As oxymoronic as that sounds, right? The things that make us most upset in this world come from just causes. But that's really difficult, right? And you can see these reconciliatory meetings where parents will forgive the, the killer of their children. It's pretty moving to think about, right? I don't really understand how anybody could ever do that, you know? And, and I, you know, I, I, I think the thing is, when I read this, I think, you know, surely God understands when I can't forgive somebody why I can't do it compassionately understands why I can't. Not, well, you know, darn it, there you go again, not forgiving, like I commanded you to, living in sin. I mean, that's how, that's how four-year-olds act. And you think the point here is we're supposed to say there's good news. That's, see, that's not good, just again, here's the criterion. Is that good news? that God will judge you exactly like you judge other people. I don't think there's anything good about that news. So I wonder if there isn't something interesting. Now, how many of you, you don't even have to raise your hand, when we come to the confession or you think about God's feelings about you, you think, wow, I'm just not worth it. Or that thing I did, God, you're going to be mad about that forever. You may let me into heaven when I die, but you're still going to be mad about me for that. How many of you have heard that when you die, there's a big movie screen in which your whole life is played out for everybody in the world who's ever existed to see, and you all have to watch it? That came from an evangelist about 40 years ago, right? And of course, you know what that's built on? It's built on, it's built on feelings of shame, because we don't want people, we don't want our grandmother to know we tried marijuana, you know, and how embarrassing that would be, and if we have that image, we'll be too scared to try it we don't want our, you know, our saintly Aunt Vanessa to know that, you know, we looked at some magazine when we were 13 years old. So that's going to keep us back because we'll be so ashamed. Would God, you'd think, I mean, would, would a loving God really subject us to that? Yeah. And then, of course, I think we have to consider, you know, we've talked about this in the last 18 months or so, you know, is there a difference between forgiving someone and being reconciled with them, right? Because forgiveness means to stop being hurt, but reconcil- reconciliation means you seek a joint future together, right? So, so maybe you can say, you know, everyone should seek forgiveness because that's about the hurt stopping. But, you know, there's certain people where if I were to try to be reconciled with them, they would hurt me more. And in certain situations, we know that's not safe for people who have been abused by their husbands, right, to go back to them. 
And maybe reconciliation doesn't mean that. Right? Maybe it means going forward in a new way, not going forward in the old way. These are good questions to wrestle with, though, don't you think? <laughs> I'm worried this is disappointing, our time together. I hope it's okay. Um, notice that, um, that there's this imperative that comes out of Matthew, when you practice your piety, do it in secret. When you give alms, do it in secret. Don't let anybody know what you're doing. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing because that's where you get your real reward, you know? And uh, if, you, if you tell people that you've given this huge gift, well, you already got your reward, right? Because now they know and they know to respect you. But if they never know, then your reward comes from God. I mean, that becomes sort of interesting, you know? Oddly enough, we pass these plates in church. You know, I've always wondered how it is you contribute to the church without seeing people, having other people see you do it. And I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, that's probably not what Jesus is talking about. Um, yeah, so when you, see, when you see our giving change, I, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I, I, don't, I don't know the solution. And I don't think that's necessarily what he's talking about. Because the truth is, sometimes, you know, being in a public eye compels people to do things that are really good that otherwise they may not have done. And, you know, I don't know that I could judge that as being negative. Um, because, you know, God did create us to live in community. That's why we have communion every week. <laughs> it's all about what we do together. Um, there is this interesting thing, isn't it? And, and I just hate that other people do this all the time. Just other people drive me crazy. This thing about don't remove the speck from somebody's eye when you have a log from your own. You know, I just don't know why anybody does that. I look at those hypocritical people and I think, you hypocrite. I think that we, we, we often think, you know, when somebody commits a crime and it's really black and white, we say, well, I would never do that. And, and I actually think Jesus is pushing us here because, and if it's okay, I'll just push you in a couple ways I've been pushed life-wise, that I still, I still is really hard for me um, this way with this spec log business, you know. One of the first things we learned when we were um, in the foster parent training, you know, I, I pretty much was sure going into it that people who lost their children were horrible people, right? Because why would you ever do that? Would you ever do that? And we had good training. It was stretched, though. Again, it's funny how we can accept things cognitively, but they become difficult in the center of our being. We heard case after case of people who, frankly, because of an unfortunate thing and in the wrong place at the wrong time, they ended up having their children removed. Like this family who the dad um, had, they just bought a new house and, and they moved in and it was a stretch, they were good, and then the plant closed and, and there went his job. And there wasn't another plant in town and he had this mortgage payment. So we ended up looking for jobs during the day, but frankly, you know, he would go to the pool hall at night to be with some other guys who were equally unemployed and talk about it. And he got a DWI on the way home. <laughs> then he couldn't look for work anymore, right? And one day he did go to a job interview and mom was working, and he left the kids at home, you know. And there was an eight-year-old, and there was a four-year-old. And something bad happened, and then CPS took the kids out of the home. And on the outside, we say, how could you ever leave your children? 
how could you do that? Well, because he was trying to make a future for them, right? I mean, you start to hear that and you think, oh, what used to be a log might be a speck, right? And I think it becomes one of those questions about our ability to have compassion. I mean, it actually comes right back to forgiveness. Do people hurt us on purpose because they hate us? Or do people hurt us and, and hurt other people, frankly, um, while doing the best that they can with what they have? I mean, that, I think that's a pretty important question. I can tell you in general, um, I, I lean, the way I live, I often lean more into the first position, although there's been a lot of work lately that sort of says that one of the keys to joy in life is whether or not you believe people are doing the best they can with what they have, <laughs> no matter how bad it, it, it ends up, you know? And I think that's a bit of reflection about this log and spec business, you know, because it becomes very, very easy for us to say, and I don't know if, if you've had a kid, you heard about people shaking babies and you thought, you know, reprehensible scum of the earth. And then you had one. And you thought, I could throw this child out the window, right? And you realized, even though you didn't do it, that was in you. And, and if you didn't have a safety net, a spouse, imagine being a single mom with two jobs, right? And a kid that's colicky. I mean, just, you sort of, you don't even have to imagine very hard, right? That people make those terrible decisions in a moment of craziness, right? That you just as well might have made yourself, right? Any of you ever spanked your kid and realize you started spanking harder and harder? because it started to become about your anger and not about the consequence. That's when you start to have, I think, compassion into people that, go, that get caught doing that, right? They get caught. You have all driven through red lights. I mean, I've probably done that five or six times this year. I just never hit anybody, you know? And I didn't do it on purpose, but sometimes it happens, right? I mean, that's where, I, I mean, I really think that's what this is about, is us reconsidering the standards with which we judge one another and whether or not we say in the middle of something being wrong, whether it was calculated and cruel and criminal or, golly, that just went really bad. Of course, you're going to be accountable for what you've done. Of course, that, right? But when we relegate people to the subhuman category over it, I, I, I think that's what this is maybe about. Okay, look, I, I didn't even make it through chapter 7, golly, so, um, and, and I probably bored you to tears. What's great about you all is that you're really polite, you know, you sit here and you think, I came to this, I can't get up and leave, because that would be rude, so, so thanks for your politeness. I guess next time, we'll just, you know, having read the other, we'll just read four more chapters, and, and we'll be a little bit faster. We'll get through chapter 16. Yes, ma'am.